Father, we ask for your wisdom here. We know that there are rewards waiting for all of us, some kind of reward. And we ask that you would help us to be living in anticipation of those rewards, knowing that we can receive more and we can also lose some reward because of a bad motivation, Lord. So we would ask that you would give us wisdom as we look into the final words of Paul in chapter 4 here in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in the view of his appearing and his kingdom, I want to stop there and just reiterate, and I did this last week, Jesus is going to be the final judge. He's going to be on a throne, and depending on where you look at in the Bible, there could be an emerald rainbow over the uh, throne. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but at the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, there's going to be no heaven, no earth, no universe. I don't know exactly what that, that is going to be like, but everyone will be there. Everyone who has ever existed will be there. And we know prior to that, the beam of seat of Christ in Second Corinthians, or excuse me, First Corinthians, nope, take that back, Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 there, we will be rewarded. Now that happens separate from the great white throne judgment. <clears throat> now when this takes place for us, we will get our trophy, so to speak. But it's really not a trophy. It's, they're called crowns. We get crowns. There's at least five crowns that I'll get into in a minute that we're going to receive. <clears throat> some will receive, receive all of them. Some will receive none of those particular crowns. But they will still be rewarded for being there. And the great white throne judgment, of course, we know <clears throat> that will take place when the unbelievers are resurrected and they will be assigned their place in hell unless they believe during the millennial reign. So the saved and the unsaved will be judged and everyone will have to give an account of what we have all done on this earth. Unbelievers will be judged and given a degree of punishment because of their refusal to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, just like a believer will be judged and given a reward based on what they have done. There's different gradations of rewards. Either you just get into heaven. You know, Job said that he was saved by the skin of his teeth. How much skin do you have in your teeth? There's no skin on your teeth. He's just making it clear that you might get there, but there's going to be no reward whatsoever, except being in the presence of Jesus Christ. And Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, talk about the great white throne judgment, the rewards that will be delivered uh, to those believers and unbelievers, or Matthew 25, 46, and Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. And so the more wicked somebody is, the greater the punishment is going to be, and the more righteous somebody has been in Christ, and I'm not talking about salvation-wise. You don't get there because you've done your own works. You get rewarded because of the works that you do for Christ. You will receive a greater reward the more you have been faithful to Christ. And so it's our job to determine how much reward do you want? How far are you willing to go in the service of Jesus Christ. Do you want to go just a little bit? Do you just want to get in there and you're going to happy to be getting in there? <clears throat> and I've heard some people talk like that. They've said, I don't care what I get up there. I just want to get in there. And that's true. But God puts those rewards out there so that we might strive for them. 
And, and not striving against one another, just striving for Jesus Christ, denying the flesh, working for him, evangelizing, all of those things. He, he tells us we are supposed to do that. Now, when rewards are handed out, there will be no jealousy or envy. You won't look at somebody else and say, why did they get that and I didn't? I did all of these things and I should be getting that reward, but I didn't get that. You're not even going to think like that. That's how we think here. We think, well, why did they get that? Why does Elon Musk get all the toys and we don't? You know, you, you think in those terms or Bezos, why does he get to own Amazon and be the richest man in the world and we don't? And do you think God determined that that would happen? I think he did. Even if Satan said, it's going to happen, God said, no, I wanted it to happen, and you thought it, so it's just going to happen the way that God wants it to happen. So we can look at our lives here, and we can have jealousy and envy and bitterness when somebody gets something that we don't get. Like, I read something this week that was a little disturbing, that the uh, illegal aliens that came across here during the Trump administration, and they were, quote, mistreated and put in cages that he didn't build, that he just used. When that happened, uh, it, the ACLU sued, and those families are going to get a half a million dollars each because they were in there, even though they came here illegally. I heard that, and I thought, why? Why? And the flesh goes, why do they get that money and I don't? You know, that's the flesh. But, but then you think, well, why would they act so foolishly in something like that? So you have all these different emotions going on and you're trying to digest what is really happening. And you think, well, I'm not even going to worry about that in heaven. Everybody's going to be there that is there. They're going to be happy and thrilled to be there. And there's going to be some that get tremendous rewards. And we're genuinely going to say, wonderful for you this is great and they're going to look at maybe me or you or whatever your reward level is like the apostle paul he probably gets all five crowns and we're going to stand there with our little tinker truck you know and and go look at this and he's going to go wonderful for you and we're just going to be happy there's going to be none of the flesh that is going to be there and so We're not going to have to worry about that. We're all going to have glorified bodies. We're all going to have eternal life. We're all going to have fellowship forever with God, with believers, fellow believers, and with angels. And it's going to be a wonderful existence. But God encourages us, look, work in such a way to gain a crown. Now, again, not one of them will say, why didn't... He gave me a life like Paul the Apostle where I could get all those five crowns. Or the Apostle will not say, look how the Lord has rewarded me. Sorry you got so little. He's not going to do that. And in the end, we'll just be rejoicing over what Jesus has done for all of us. And it will be a tremendous blessing. But there's one caveat. There's one warning, one admonition. And it is that there are some who will lose reward. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you are familiar with the wood, hay, and several gold, silver, and precious stones, and there will be fire put to our works, and whatever remains after the fire is put there, that will be our reward. And we know by the testimony of the Spirit within us that God wants us to do a work, and when we refuse to do a particular work, we miss the opportunity for reward. Now, all of us know if God is prompting us to do something. For instance, 
Have you ever felt guilty about not getting up and going to church? Now, I don't have that problem. I get up, you know, I have to be here. I don't feel guilty about being here. Maybe for the message, I feel guilty afterwards, but getting here, that's not a problem. Or do you ever feel guilty about not doing something for the Lord? Now, you have to determine if that is genuine guilt or if that is guilt that's brought on by the enemy. Like maybe you're doing all kinds of things and you feel you need to do something else and the enemy goes, you should have done that too, you weakling Christian, what do you think you're doing? And he comes in and condemns us, but then we get the slight sense of guilt because maybe we're not doing something more and who will do it if I don't do it? And we take on too much, then we get overburdened, we get burned out, and that false sense of guilt comes in. We are able to determine which one it is. If it is the enemy and he is condemning us or if it is an overloading and we know we should do this but you have to step back and use wisdom and say I I can't do everything. It's not our jobs to do everything. It is our jobs to do what the Lord has called us to do. And so if we do something out of the wrong motivations we'll probably lose reward for that particular thing. If you do something for God that you believe is for God and you do it to get accolades, to get praise, that type of thing, you'll, that's your reward. You're going to get that reward. You won't get it in heaven. And all the works that we do, if you can do them in secret, do them in secret, but good works cannot be hidden. And when the people come and offer you thanksgiving and praise, you have to be careful just to pass it on to God and say, God, it's all you. And we do that in the quietness of our heart or in your quiet time. And so that's going to be the case. That's the caveat. We could end up losing reward for the way that we act when we perform our works of service for the Lord or if we neglect to do them at all when he calls us. And that is just something on the inside. So Paul makes this case starting out that we will all stand before the judge, Jesus Christ, of the living and the dead. And in view of his coming kingdom, he... Paul says to Timothy, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So he's telling him how to correct, how to rebuke, how to encourage. And he's supposed to be prepared in season and out of season. I had a little thing happen at the house uh, the other day. I I pulled up and normally I open the garage and everything works wonderful and I put in there what I need to put in there and I close the door and I go on my business for the evening. Well, I came home the other day and I pressed the button and it, it would go, the garage, it just wouldn't open. I go, what? You know, I didn't say it like that. I just go, now what? You know, what's, what's going on? And so I tried to investigate to see what's going on. And I looked up above the garage. And there's two big springs up there. And one of them broke. I go, great. This is out of season. This isn't, I wasn't planning on this happening. So I wrote an email and I took care of it. And, and it got fixed and it's wonderful. But it was something that was out of season. I wasn't ready for that to happen. Same thing with doing works for God. You're not ready for something to take place. I've told you before when I've been witnessing, if I've been at work and the Lord 
provide somebody to come along and he wants me to witness to them, but I'm busy. I'm doing things and I don't want to be interrupted. And then I go, I I recognize that as soon as the guy or the, the person, whoever it is, if they linger, I go, okay, I'm putting down everything that I'm doing and I'm focusing, just focus. I focus on the person and I start praying, God, what, what do you want me to say? <clears throat> How do you want me to be a witness? And this happens on a regular basis uh, to me. And I, I look forward to those times. I just have to take my flesh and put it to the side. My flesh says, don't you know you have work to do? And it's like, no, eternity is more important than the work. The work will take care of itself. The Lord will be able to, have you ever heard the phrase, multiply your time? or what you're doing at that particular time. He will just cause it to work out all for the good for both you and for eternity. <clears throat> and so that's being prepared out of season. And out of season is you're not ready. You're, you're not in the mindset. And God says, no, I have something for you to do. And it's an exercise for us to extend mercy and grace and to exercise our gifts when we don't expect it and that produces in us patience and endurance and if the person is encouraged or they even receive salvation we are greatly encouraged and then the work that you return to it it goes so much better and you you're thanking god after that so he tells timothy and he goes i give you this charge or in other words be sober-minded be ready to do this preach the word be prepared in season and out of season. And he goes on to say, to correct, rebuke, and encourage. Now, to rebuke, all the synonyms for rebuke are reprimand, reproach, scold, admonish, reprove, chastise, upbraid, berate, take to task, criticize, censure, uh, tell off, give someone a talking to, give someone a dressing down, give someone an earful, a chew out, a ream out and a formal castigate. Now imagine a pastor doing that. What do you think you're doing? You know, you don't have to yell while doing it, but you just say something, you have acted foolishly, and it's a strong rebuke to somebody who has done something that is completely foolish. And the Lord, through Paul, admonishes Timothy to do this. Now Paul did that as well. there are times where Paul, he rebuked Peter because he was following in the way of the Gentiles, or excuse me, of the Judaizers, and forsaking the Gentiles and ministry to them to follow the practices of the Old Testament and rebuked him for it. And so that is something that a pastor, an elder, a deacon, an apostle, a prophet, they're supposed to do that. But I think that that is always the last resort because in that same passage, he says, correct, which is not as strong as rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So if somebody is doing something wrong, if it's going to cause harm to themselves or to somebody else, the pastor, the elder, the apostle back then, the prophet, whoever it was, was to sit down and say, let me tell you something. I have some experience here. I want to give you some instruction. I want to be very patient with you, even though you've done this several times. I I want you to understand that this is what's going to happen if you continue. And and that's the job of the pastor. That's the job of the elder. That's the job of the deacon. That's what they're supposed to do with great patience. You're not supposed to get frustrated over an individual who says, 
Now I think I'm going to do my own thing. All you're supposed to do is walk away and go, okay, hey, I gave you the instruction. I'm not your Lord and Master. That would be Jesus Christ. I'm just a messenger. I want to let you know these bad things could happen, and it's your choice what you want to do. So the charge that is given to him is to correct, to point out error with an eye for making it right, and something that has fallen over has to be set upright once again. So when error occurs, you go in and you fix it. A pastor, a deacon, an elder, apostle, prophet, they're supposed to be fixers. They see a problem, they correct the problem. Now, if someone is prideful and they will not allow themselves to feel shame, if they've done something wrong and they only seek to justify their actions or positions and turn it back on the deliverer, if they try to say, look, what I'm doing is okay, I can do this, and let me explain to you why I can do this, the Lord is saying, no, that that person is prideful. They're unable to receive instruction. And we understand how difficult that can be. Have you you ever had a, a time where you just didn't receive something from somebody? You did something wrong, and you're going, that's on you. Hey, you're the problem. I'm not the problem. I can do what I want. I have freedoms, no problems, no uh, skin off my back, or you know, however you want to phrase it. You can just simply walk away and say, I am justified in my own eyes for my own actions. It's okay. That type of person is prideful. Normally, they're prideful. If, if the pastor, and by the way, pastors, elders, and deacons, they are fallible, and they make mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes. I've had plenty of times over the last 31 years to make mistakes, and I have my share of them. But if you can point to Scripture properly interpreted, and you can say, this is wrong, don't do this, and the person receives it, well, that's good. They can repent. They can return, return to the Lord, so to speak. The fellowship is no longer broken, and they can continue on. But if they refuse the instruction, a common one in the past has been when a couple has been living together. And there have been times where I have talked to the couples, and there have been times where elders have gone and talked to the couples. And it's interesting, very rarely will they say, you know, this is wrong. We need to repent of this. What should we do? I can think of one case where they did that. All the other cases... this is the pattern you talk to them first thing they do is justify what they're doing then they leave the church then at some point they usually return to show that they've gotten married which just proves the point what they were doing was incorrect and so they're unable to receive it and God says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God that's 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians chapter 5. It's all there. But the person who says, yep, you know, you're right. How do we correct this? And sometimes it's happened where they already have children and they're living together and they're not married. And what are you supposed to do? Do you tell them, that's it, this man separate? It takes the wisdom of Solomon to kind of separate some of these things out. But that's the job of the pastor, to encourage, come alongside, to assist to help them correct what's going on with gentleness and patience. If you exercise all of those things, we're doing the will of God. And he goes on in verse 3 
just says, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. <clears throat> itching ears, you know, we don't use that phrase very much. We've used the phrase like, my ears were burning. And you say that because you think somebody has been talking about you or somebody was talking about you. And that's a phrase we use. Well, itching ears is, oh, my, my ear itches. You know, sometimes you'll get in there and just start digging away. And, oh, oh it feels so good. My thing is a Q-tip. Oh, you put that Q-tip in there and you just kind of roll it around. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. Itching ears. Well, some pastors are like Q-tips. They get in there and they get that ear thing going and the person goes oh thank you that's so wonderful and they're looking for something that satisfies that doesn't condemn or tell them that they're doing something wrong and that's the type of teacher they go to the feel-good church the seeker-friendly church all of the churches are supposed to be seeker-friendly all of them but some they don't want to talk about the issue of sin. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, that, that's what the Bible says. And the wages of sin is death. <clears throat> and if you say that, well, it could offend somebody who is an unbeliever. The cross is offensive. It tells us we are sinners. It tells us we're going to die. But some people don't like to hear that. And so what they'll do is they'll go to the church where it never talks about sin. Let's talk about the efficacy of having a Bible study that is either topical or expositional. There's a time and place for that, but if you don't give the gospel, and the gospel means talking about the cross, if you don't do that, it does not benefit anybody. And there are arenas filled with people who like that kind of message. That's what they gravitate towards. They want to think positively all the time. They, they are Tony Robbins pastors, which are out there. You just got to do this. And if you do that, your life will be great. And there'll be health, wealth, and prosperity. You know, some of these doctrines that have come along <coughs> over the last 2,000 years, certainly. But in our time, like universalism, where there's an instance where Christians, uh, some Christians, some people will say that the Christian God is the same as the Muslim God. Allah is the same as Yahweh. That is just a lie, but it's this move of ecumenism, ecumenicalism, to bring all the people in the world together under one heading, one religion, so to speak. So the same God is, or the God is the same God over all these religions, universalism, and everybody is going to get saved. <clears throat> then there's the prosperity gospel. If Christians are sick, suffering, or poor, it is because they lack faith. You just don't have enough faith. I love it when these faith teach, well, I don't really love it, but I, I uh, muse in my heart when these faith teachers come along and they say, if you just have enough faith, you won't be sick. And then they get sick. But then they deny they're sick. And this, Satan's telling them a lie that they're sick. They're really not sick. They're really okay. But then they get so sick, they die. And it's like, what happened? That didn't quite work out. Uh, you know, in the Gospel of John, <clears throat> when Jesus and Mary and Martha were there and, uh, you know, Jesus was talking to me or, or talking to Mary and it, it, it comes to the end where if you believe in me, you will not die. If you have enough faith, you'll not die. Do you believe this? 
And she goes, yes, Lord, I believe that. And she starts talking about the resurrection. I had somebody come up to me once said, if you just have enough faith, you'll never get sick and die. It's like, you believe that? And they said, yeah, that's what the scripture says. And I'm going, it's a facepalm type of reaction when you have that. But the prosperity gospel, if Christians are sick or poor suffering, it's because they lack faith. Then there's the new age movement that contends that the humankind, the human person, the woman, the man, they're divine and can be created in his own reality and identity. You can speak things into existence that, you know, I, I don't know if you guys, uh, I think most of you do remember Shirley MacLaine. Uh, what was the guy's name uh, in Driving Miss Daisy uh, and uh, the chauffeur, uh, the black guy, I forget his name. Morgan Freeman, thank you. He also said he's God. Both Shirley MacLaine and Morgan Freeman said they're God. I, I saw the interviews. And I go, you think you're God? And they create their own reality. And I'm going, this is, this is just not right. But that's the New Age movement. And that's one of these beliefs. And people want to believe that they're good and they're God and they can create their own universe or legalism. Now, this would be the Hebrew roots movement, although they would say you don't have to follow the Old Testament in order to be saved. They say if you're going to be pleasing to Christ, you have to follow the Old Testament. You have to follow all the, the rules and regulations that are in there. It would be good if theonomy existed where you installed the Old Testament law as far as our judicial system is concerned. And all of that, that legalism that is there, you know, that that is not true as well. That is a false gospel that is there. Then there's hypergrace, which is a reaction to the legalism. Hypergrace is <clears throat> everybody's getting saved. God's grace is just wonderful. It covers everyone. You can do whatever you want, and God is just going to be there and, and give you his grace. It is the opposite of legalism. You can do whatever you want to do, and it's going to be just fine for you. And then there's the emerging church. They make the gospel more palatable for those who come in. They don't talk about sin. I just mentioned this previously. They just say, well, if you do these certain things in these prayer walks and these ancient, ancient mystical uh, tasks that they used to perform in centuries past, if you just do those particular things, everything will be fine. And, of course, <clears throat> because we believe these things, it is a sign that we don't really know, accept, and understand the Bible. For instance, in the same article where I was reading these things, said 22% of Americans believe the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. How many percent? How many people believe that? 22%. How many people don't believe that? 78% do not believe that the Bible is the actual word of God and should be taken literally. That is, that is just beyond me. I hope all of you in here believe that the Bible is the word of God and should be taken literally. If it says, do not murder, that's literal. Do not murder. Although there is another application to that. If you murder somebody in their heart or if you are angry with somebody in your heart, you've committed murder. Also, 28% believe it is the actual word of God, but with multiple possible interpretations. Well, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. You've heard me say the verse before that wine makes life merry and money is the answer for everything. I just told this a week and a half ago to somebody who is an unbeliever. And I said, you know, if you interpret the scriptures however you want to, you can make it say whatever you want to. And I told him, I said, 
That's what the Bible says. Wine makes life merry and money's the answer for everything. And I said, if that is the way it's supposed to be interpreted, all you need is wine and money. And I told him, and he looked at me like, the Bible says that? And I said, yeah, it says that. Book of Ecclesiastes. And we were having a discussion, one of those discussions out there where the Lord wanted me to stop. And so 28% believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, but should not be taken literally. And 18% believe it is an ancient book of legends, history, and moral precepts written by man. Which I'm, I'm glad that number is low. The Bible is something more than that, but you don't have to really take it literally and people just don't hold solidly to the Bible. They don't understand what it says. It should be the case if a universalist comes up and says everybody is going to be saved or they can be saved by many different means. There's all the spokes that lead to the hub. You can be in any religion. You should... Quote to them, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men might be saved. And of course, that's Jesus Christ. He's the only way. And somebody may object to that and say, Well, that's so bigoted. That's so narrow-minded. And your thinking is like this just one line to God. And you say, Yep, there's only one line to God. There is no other God that can offer salvation. There is no other truth which is out there. And why do I believe that? I, I've told you many times. It's because of the prophetic aspect of the Bible. There are no other documents out there which are as prophetic as the Bible or even close. And what about those who promote the prosperity gospel? You know, if you know this, you could end up looking it up. You probably don't have it memorized. I don't have this memorized, but I know it's there. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. If somebody says... If you just believe and you claim it, if you put your faith check on the altar down here, you will get hundreds, if not thousands, 30, 60 times uh, what has been sown, or maybe a hundred times what has been sown. You can be rich because God wants you to be rich. Really, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And, and so that's a, a quick retort to somebody who'd say, God wants you to be rich. Well, what about God saying the poor will be with you always, even inside Christendom? You will have the poor. They will be here always. It is not God's will that everyone is an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. That is not the case. Or what about the New Agers? Uh, you know, our response to that can simply be there is only one God. And Christ Jesus is it. You know, you can just go through the Trinity. You, you can say that there are no multiple gods. You can go back to Isaiah chapter 44 and, and uh, belief in one God in verse 6. It says there is one God and there is one Savior. There are not multiple gods. And God has so many places where he says he is it. There is no one else. And what about the legalists who have the Hebrew roots? Uh, they, they say that you need to follow the Old Testament. Well, you would simply refer them to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where we're not saved by works. And they would say, well, we're not saved by works, but we have to do them in order to be pleasing to God. The work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent, which is Jesus Christ. That's the work of God. Everything else is just a byproduct of that simple belief. And what about the emerging church, which I believe is another gospel? You'd go to Galatians for that. You'd say but even if an angel or we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel other than the one we have preached let him be eternally eternally condemned so that's how we should respond to these things 
But most people don't know the Bible. They don't understand the Bible. They're not able to use it correctly. That's why Bible study is so important. And in the last days especially, people will gravitate to what they want to hear and not what the Bible actually declares. False doctrines will never cease coming into the church. But what about current trends? Will they also lead to false practices and false doctrines? I can safely say the church... Certainly in the United States, I really can't speak worldwide, but certainly in the United States has forever been changed by the pandemic. It will never be the same. And what do I mean by that? Well, what about just fellowship? I have read articles on what fellowship is and what it's not. In my opinion, I'm just going to state in my own words, fellowship is a face-to-face meeting where you are able to look in the eyes of the other person. They look in your eyes. There's maybe a handshake, a hug, an embrace of some kind. You sit down and you talk. Like in a Bible study setting, it can be more than one person, but that is fellowship. You talk usually about God. You don't talk about the races. You don't talk about Delmar. You don't talk about Switzerland. You don't talk about... Uh, the politics necessarily you you just sit there and fellowship about god jesus christ salvation everything that is in the bible that's what fellowship is it's what we have in common the holy spirit between us and that can only truly take place while we're with each other now one of the trends i'm going to just give you two out of about 10 that i went through A growing number of attending believers that will not be in the building for church. That is a trend. That people will watch online. For you people who are watching online, this is a trend. And it becomes a trend especially, or it has become a trend during the pandemic. That we weren't able to meet. We didn't know what was going on. And I think we've been lied to about it. But anyhow, and many people have died. And as a side note, uh, Bob Walker and Vicky. Is it Walker? Uh, he died uh, this last week. I don't know if you know. He was the pastor up in Boulevard Calvary Chapel. Just moved to Arizona a few months ago. Got COVID and he died uh, a few days ago. So you might pray for his wife, Vicky. But a growing number of people will not attend church. They will just watch it online. And I have heard people come up to me and say, well, you can still have fellowship by being on Zoom. Look, Zoom has its time and its place. It's wonderful. I I think it's tremendously good technology, which is there. But if if God says, do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren as is a habit of some, and all the more as you see a day approaching, and you try to say, well, that can be online as well. I don't agree with that. I think that that is a false interpretation. But what they were talking about, these growing trends, they were pushing it in such a way that we need to be prepared for this, that this is the way the church is going to be in the future. And I would point everybody away from that. Now, there is a time and place, and we can do that, and and it's wonderful, and I've done it in the past. It's great, but if you really want to have fellowship, it has to be face-to-face. Now, let me have you ask yourself a few questions. Can true Christian fellowship take place without meeting in person? And you have to think about it. Can it? The way the Bible describes it. Or is Zoom. And remember, I like Zoom. Zoom is good. I'm not 
condemning Zoom. I'm just talking about pure fellowship. Okay? Uh, is Zoom sometimes necessary and legitimate a good substitute for Christian fellowship? <clears throat> well, I believe it's a substitute. Is it a good substitute? That will be your own estimation, if it is or not, and to what degree. If the Internet was around during the ministry of Jesus, would he have said, come, pick up your mouse and computer and follow me? I don't think he would have. I think he would have said, come, follow me. Actually, in a metaphorical sense, that you're going to do what he does, but actually follow him in his footsteps, be with him. Or Say, for instance, Thanksgiving is coming up. Say at Thanksgiving, you do a Zoom meal with your family where you get everything fixed at your house and you place it in front of you and you're all sitting in front of the computer screen and all oh, this chicken or this turkey is wonderful, giblets and gravy and the person saying, oh yeah, it is. And you see all the pictures. You'd say, that's just stupid. You know, you, you wouldn't do that. And it would be different than being together around a table. Now our family, it's growing. Patty wants me to build a table that is like 10 feet long by 12 feet wide that you'll only have room to walk around the outside of the room and have all the family there and the grand, and, uh, you know. <clears throat> Anyhow, it's different when it's like that as opposed to being online. I mean, you're right there with each other and you're talking and you're you're carrying on a conversation the familial attitudes that are there they all come out while you're with each other and what if this one if a man or woman is going to do a breakup is it okay to do it by text or over instagram instead of in person you'd look at that and you go how dare you do something like that over a text like we're through you know, and the angry emoji and whatever you put on there. All of us would say, you got to be kidding me, right? That's how you're breaking up? You're doing it over a text? If you're going to break up, and it, not that anyone in here is planning on breaking up, but if, if that is going to happen, it has to be face-to-face. I mean, the importance of something like that. You can do so much damage to individuals. Patty and I, we were recently in um, Tennessee, in Nashville. And we wanted to experience Nashville. <clears throat> and there was this one guy, uh, he had opened, we found out later, he opened for Toby Keith in a couple of places. We heard him, when you walk by in the streets, the windows are open. And there's different bands and all these windows they're at the window and the venue is on the inside it's on the inside so you have to go inside to to see what they're doing and this one guy he he was good you know he could play just about anything and it was nice to be there and he looks over and he sees this woman sitting all by herself on a high top table for two she's all by herself and she's texting and he turns over to her in the midst of what he's doing he goes hey you getting a text breakup and she, yes. And he goes, oh. And he just, he focused on her. He took her. He started dancing with her and singing at the same time. And it's like, what a guy. But the woman was being broken up with by a text that was there. And I thought, how cruel is that to have that happen? Uh, how do um, you feel if you get fired by receiving an email? How would you feel on that? 
You don't have a chance to say anything or defend yourself. Or how about this one? Is it okay to get married on a Zoom meeting? Someone's in another state, another country, and then there's the pastor on the Zoom meeting, and then you're over here. And No, you have to be there. It isn't something that you can do in absentia or being absent. You have to be there. But that's the way the church is going. The church is going in such a way when genuine fellowship, and again, I, I need to reiterate, there are times for the Zoom or whatever um, the call uh, video service you have. It, there are times for that, and it works. But as a general uh, way the church is moving, uh, this person who wrote this article was, was going on to say, the church is no longer going to be in a building then you're forsaking the gathering together of the brethren as is the habit of some. You know, um, how did Moses meet with, I believe it was uh, Christophany, how did Moses meet with Jesus? Well, it was face to face. It said that in Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. He could have done it in a vision. He could have done it in an apparition. He could have done it several other ways. And, and I know that there are some pastors that say, well, what it meant was he just, he let Moses know his presence was there, maybe not necessarily showing up. I believe Jesus showed up, sat down, say, hey, Moses, what's happening? And Moses would go, oh, Lord, it's good to see you. And, and, and you know, and they would talk back and forth. And then Moses would be able to talk to him. Now, <clears throat> I've had Jewish friends in the past and the way that they talk, you know, there's, and if they're truly uh, Jewish, I, I mean, they, they are, they use their hands and, and they're passionate. If you go over to Israel, the Jews are passionate. I could see Moses going back and forth with Jesus and, and just going, oh, what about this? And Jesus would say, well, let me tell you about that. And, and he would instruct him face to face is the way he would handle his relationship. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There was no electronic internet back then. They had to meet together to the breaking of bread, sitting down and having a meal with each other. The potlucks, you know, they're wonderful. And to prayer. And nine times Paul uses the phrase or phrases, I hope or I long to see you. Now, the equivalent today of a text would be a letter in the time of Paul. And Paul wrote all kinds of letters, many we don't have, probably, certainly most we don't have. But he wrote letters. But he always would say, I long to see you. I long to be in your presence. So all I want to say about that, if the trend of the church is to go online, I don't believe that's God's will. There is a time and there is a place for it. But I believe it's God's will to meet together, to fellowship, to break bread, to see people eye to eye, to have an embrace, all of those things. And without that, I think we become dysfunctional as a society. And if that's the direction we're heading, it's not good. Then there's the political and ideological churches that they will lose influence with the unchurched. In 2020, it surfaced anything is how political and ideological and some... I need to back up and say this correctly. In 2020, there has been this movement 
perceived by some that there is a political and ideological movement inside the churches as opposed to just giving the Bible. I hope I said that clearly enough. Now, I believe that that is true, that we have become more aware of what's going on, where there are some people that think you should never talk about any political candidate or any political issue inside the church. And you have heard me mention Fauci, Trump, Pelosi, Schumer, the government voting abortion, gay marriage, media, the NEA, the CIA, the FBI, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Google, the election, BLM, Antifa, and on and on. You've heard me mention all of those things. All of those things are cultural, political, ideological. All of them are. And it's not because I have become political. It's because the Bible is moral. And in all of these instances where I've mentioned these people or these groups, they have been acting immorally. And remember John the Baptist. He lost his head over speaking against the rulers who were acting immorally. And when a ruler acts good, I think we should say, hey, this ruler is doing us good. And it doesn't make the difference who the leader is. All of them, all of them are filthy, rotten, sinning pagans. Every single one of them, just like us. We are the same, but we've been saved by grace. It's just our job to point out where things are going wrong. And if somebody says, you're never to talk about politics or other religions, what do you think Jesus would do that? No, he got people so riled up, they killed him because he talked about what was wrong. He said, this is wrong. And whether the leadership, now he really didn't confront Rome so much. It was the religious and political leaders in Israel. And so what our leaders are pushing is immorality, those who want the church to be silent on these issues. And this all goes back to President Johnson. President Johnson proposed an amendment to the tax code that has greatly restricted the free speech of pastors since July 2nd of 1954. The problem was there was a guy by the name of, I think his name was Gary Cass, that was running against Johnson when he was a senator. And because of that, Johnson was suffering in the polls and it looked like he might not win. So he proposed this amendment to where the churches, if you're a a nonprofit organization, you're not allowed to say anything politically because he didn't want them to exercise their free speech rights, which are in the Constitution, and therefore you could lose your tax-exempt status. So it's been around all that time. It started to dissipate uh, with the last president. And there are places like the ACLJ and others that are pushing forward to let churches be able to speak on these issues. I'm going to speak whether we have our uh, 5013C rating or not. I'm just going to tell you this is right, this is wrong, this leader is good, this one is not. I'm going to say that. And that's what the Lord declares we are supposed to do. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. But sometimes when you bring it across in love, sometimes it doesn't sound very good, but it's still loving you ever heard the parents say, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me? You know, <clears throat> well, it could be just the opposite. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. <clears throat> because you, you don't want to discipline your child so, because you feel bad on the inside. You know, it, it hurts on the inside. But sometimes they made a song about it. Love hurts. Remember that song? <clears throat> and so, but he goes on to tell um, Timothy, but you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. 
And I got seven minutes. <clears throat> well, he, he wants Timothy to stand steady, not to be afraid of suffering for the Lord, bring others to Christ, and leave nothing undone that ought to be done. That's what he's telling Timothy as an apostle. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure, which he knew he was going to die after this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, I'm going to stop here. The reason I'm going to stop here is because there's these five crowns that I want to talk about because he's talking about a crown here, the crown of righteousness. <clears throat> and maybe you can do the homework, uh, homework of finding out, well, what are the five crowns? Where are they listed in scripture? What is going to be the reward for each crown? Or what is the crown re- a reward for? What kind of work, what kind of task is it a reward for? You know that there is a crown for martyrdom. Now, I hope none of you sign up for that one. But if, if somebody has to go through that, well, they get a reward for that. And my desire is that as we go through the next five, ten years, things are still going to dramatically change. Trends are going to come into the church, and we're going to say, well, how is this happening? I think I told you I got a book like three to five years ago from a pastor's conference that said the church is going to change where it's not going to be the pastor anymore. There's going to be tables set up in a room and you'll each go to a a table and then each table will just talk about the Bible and that's going to be church. And I thought, that is not the biblical model of church. And so there is a move in the church to change what it has been historically. And some change is good, but this type of change is not good. I want you to be, my prayer for you is that you are involved in fellowship, face-to-face discord about spiritual matters, moral matters, political matters in this life. You are engaging each other. That you embrace, you give somebody a hug, you, you give them a handshake, you look at them in the eyes. You fellowship like the Bible talks about fellowshipping. That you don't justify not being face-to-face, that the Zoom or the Internet or whatever the case might be, that that is sufficient. It is not sufficient according to Scripture. I pray that you guys will become strengthened in your faith, that you'll know the word no more, and you'll be able to buck against these trends and these false doctrines that will continue to come in the church. And doing so, we'll be able to continue the work that the Lord has called us to. Let's pray. Father, we come before you just asking for your help. Asking for your help that we might live the sanctified, holy, set-apart lives that you have called us to. We each suffer under trials and temptations to one degree or another. But we ask that you would just continue the work you promised to complete in us and help us to be submissive to the moving of your spirit that we might know your will in all situations because we have your word in our hearts and the testimony of your spirit. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.